Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast, presented by SeatGeek. The best place to buy tickets, download the SeatGeek app on your smartphone and save $20 off your first purchase with promo code SOXMACHINE. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of September 24th, 2018. We are entering the final week of the Major League Baseball season. There are still a few races left that might come down to the wire, including where the White Sox will be drafting in 2019. I kid. Uh, those races, of course, are in the American League wildcard on who will host that one-game playoff between the Yankees and the Athletics, who will win the National League Central and the National League West, and whoever doesn't win those divisions, who will duke it out for the final wildcard spots. Plus, the White Sox just wrapped up the Crosstown Classic against the Chicago Cubs, where they actually won a game out of the three, as they sit at 61-94 and on the season, and we'll preview the final home series of 2018 as the Cleveland Indians come into town. But first, this weekend was a special one, if you were watching the White Sox on TV, as it was the last time we got a chance to watch Hawk Harrelson call the games. Joining me to discuss the emotional goodbye is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. I'm glad we got one good game for Hawk to call in this series. Unfortunately, it was the Friday game where the White Sox won 10-4 because the final game on Sunday was a clunker from the very beginning. And it just sucks from a standpoint that we didn't get a chance to hear Hawk get excited one last time. What are your thoughts about Hawks last weekend from the broadcast booth? I would say it sucks, but it's ultimately fitting. Um, Just the era coming to a close. That was basically his last uh, nine years or so was calling games of, uh, you know, no consequence, a lot of quiet nights, a lot of incomplete efforts. Um, So, you know, it seems like he went out with a, you know, he went out in a way that I guess makes it, you know, makes me not miss him. Cause I think, you know, if it were a great game, 
it would be, you know, Hawk bringing it for the big moments, uh, you know, the, the calls that only he can do. You know, people pay tribute to him around the league, not just, you know, Benetti with uh, illusions, but also like guys like Matt Vaskersian and such, you know, always drop his name and, and drop his quotes. And, you know, Hawk is the original source material for that. So if he had a big game and, and I would kind of think like, man, if only they, they gave him more, you know, games to call like that. But I think, you know, there's enough, um, you know, there's enough stagnation and enough, you know, re- re- repetition in his broadcast to where you know the good hawk was never coming back it's in the past you know time to move on and i think you know a series like this where it's foreshadowing the kind of baseball that is likely to be played for at least big chunks of 2019 you know there's no improvement around the corner so let's just uh make it jason benetti's time for good i was a bit surprised on sunday's broadcast that it looked like aj brzezinski came straight from the golf course uh, I, f- I figured that he would be, I figured he would be with Hawk for the entire game, but it was just for a few innings. I thought the plan was for him to be there from the first inning all the way through the ninth, but we got a chance to see Steve Stone and Hawk one last time. You think Steve, as far as Stoney, uh, carried it well? It was weird. Um, you know, I think it was great that Pierzynski was there for, you know, the duration he was just because he kept the conversation going. He had a really good um, exchange with Hawk about the twins of the, you know, of the era that Pierzynski played and what they did and the unusual ways that they prepared in instructional league and how they came up through the system. And, you know, that kind of provided some uh, additional information for the things we've always heard and the things we've always heard, you know, Haw- Harrelson and others rave about the twins for their discipline and the way they uh, groomed players and everything like that. So that was cool. And, and it was nice to hear the conversation flowing, even though the game was, basically a hey dead end from the very beginning so there was that at the end it seemed like you know i think stone couldn't have done much more based on the relationship they have you know he's not somebody who's you know somebody who brings harrelson out of his shell and he's not somebody who you know really jokes and prods him and such and i think harrelson being in a very delicate state uh you know after the seventh inning stretch um you know stone asked him you know what he plan to do in the future and harrelson just kind of froze and started you know, choking up and looked unprepared to answer the question, even though it's kind of a question that's been, you know, asked of him all year long. And it got a little awkward from there. And I think that, you know, maybe if we were wimpy there, like we talked about uh, last time, you know, somebody who would have been able to, you know, kind of laugh at Hawk choking up and be able to kind of laugh through the tears and make it, you know, less sad. Um, But in this case, I don't think Stone has that in him. So it was, I, I think not an ideal pairing to kind of uh, help Hawk get through the very emotional state he was in for the last two and a half innings. So it was a little bit of a letdown, I think, just because, you know, he just said so little and, you know, he was sniffing a lot and it was just, um, you know, it was, it was authentic emotion, but um, I guess, you know, trying to channel that emotion, the words I think would have been more satisfying. We did get one everlasting moment, though, with Hawk as he flipped off Steve Stone in the first game yes. of the series on TV. <laughs> yep. That was great. Oh, good job, camera crew. Uh, as far as the directors in the truck uh, catching that on TV, that was uh, that was fun. I, I laughed. It's it, it's a harmless moment, uh, but it, it was uh, it, it was very Hawk to do that yep. <laughs> to Steve Stone. Yeah. Like when they when they both laugh. And it's rare that they both laugh at something. You know, the broadcast is like 40 pounds lighter. And, you know, that's, I think, the unfortunate, you know, uh, I guess, 
well, not really an outcome because it's kind of just how they dealt with it. But just, you know, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a shame there weren't more moments like that and they weren't compatible to generate that. Because when Hawk left and when Hawk lightened up, um, you know, the, the broadcast goes a lot smoother and Stone either didn't have that in him or just, you know, didn't feel uh, welcome to engage the way that he engages with Jason Bonetti. You know, I think if, if Stone were able to, you know, prod Hawk the way he prods Bonetti, you know, it might have been better. But for some reason, you know, they were never able to do that. And, you know, Wimpy was really the only guy who's been able to do that uh, over the years. And, you know, I'm not sure why, but, you know, just unfortunate. Yeah, and Jason Benetti was in Philadelphia calling the Philadelphia Eagles-Indianapolis Colts game Mm. on the radio. So he was unfortunately not able to be in Chicago. We'll talk about that in a brief moment. Uh, But here's something to ponder. Ten years from now, I'm hoping Hawk is still alive, but we never know. I don't even know if I'm going to be alive. But anyways, ten years from now. This got dark. Yeah, it did. (laughs) That's the that's 2018 for you, Jim. Yep. Uh, <laughs> in 2028, let's say you and I are still podcasting, and someone puts up a PO Sox question about Hawk, about what do you remember from Hawk? What is Hawk's everlasting legacy 10 years after the fact? So standing here as far as in the present, just after his last broadcast, what do you think his lasting legacy will be? I think it'll be the ultimate homer, and I think... Uh you know, the, the combination of being a Homer and then just being, you know, the catchphrases I think will endure that you can put it on the board. I don't see that going anywhere. Um, you know, can of corn, so, you know, chopper two hopper, uh, you know, these you know, descriptive phrases for everyday baseball plays, I think will hang around for a while. Um, you know, be part of the lexicon among White Sox fans, which is pretty cool. And I think, you know, when you talk about, you know, Hawk as a Frick award nominee, you know, I understand the arguments against it or why other guys who might be more professional and maybe more prepared and more diligent about their work, um, you know, and, and providing that day in and day out over the years, you know, might get the edge or might deserve the edge. But I think, you know, Hawk, you know, for all his faults and all the way he annoys people has made an impact in the game. And, you know, I think a more, um, I, I would say a longer lasting impact just on the wider baseball lexicon. And, and I think that's, you know, that's hard to do, uh, it, as we've seen with, you know, uh, you know, whether it's nicknames or, or jokes or, you know, baseball is, you know, like anything else is so fragmented now, you know, among fan bases and how fan bases follow, whether it's, you know, radio talk shows or, you know, say White Sox Twitter or, um, you know, just on mainstream media, however you follow it, you know, you're going to have different segments and different in jokes and to have somebody like Harrelson who can, you know, not only provide, common references and, and common jokes and common nicknames that uh, you know, span the entire fan base, but also bleed out into the greater baseball world is really hard to do. And, you know, I wonder as, you know, I, I don't see media uniting. You know, I, I think everybody's going to take in games and follow games and uh, teams, however they follow it. I don't see that being any easier to achieve. So he might be the last of his kind, not only in, in terms of his idiosyncratic personality and his homerism and his extreme uh, behavioral swings. You know, there's that. But I also think just the way he was able to permeate uh, baseball culture is going to be really hard to do for broadcasters from here on out. So, you know, I think that makes him worthy of the Frick Award. And I think uh, uh, ultimately, you know, as the years go on, I think we'll remember the bigger calls, the Mark Burley calls, the... Uh, the 
Joe Creedy call, you know, all these big moments I think will resonate and the kind of minor annoyances that persisted with hockey over the last 10 to 15 years. Um, you know, him being kind of a crank will just kind of be shrugged away and not worth complaining about or, uh, you know, griping about anymore. Now, I mentioned Jason Benetti. Jason Benetti, I assume, is still going to be taking on national broadcasting jobs where he'll go on site to call a college football game or a college basketball game for ESPN, and he'll do the same thing for the NFL on Sundays. So I don't imagine Jason Benetti calling all 162 games on television in the upcoming years for the White Sox. There are going to be opportunities for the White Sox where they are going to need to fill in for Jason Benetti to call the games. So, Jim, we talked about this previously, but is Hawk truly done? Could we see him in the future? But based on his sign-off, do you still think that that is a possibility on the table? I think it could be. Um, I, I think he acknowledged it or left it open when asked about it before the game. And it makes sense, you know, especially say if they do like a, um, you know, I don't know where exactly they would put it, but a statue for Hawk, you know, if they had like a statue day or some kind of commemoration, I could see him, you know, celebrating it and then calling the game, you know, as a, you know, spin in the chair, whether it's for an inning or whether it's for a game, you know, if, if it's a one Benetti might be busy for, yeah, I could see something like that being the case or a way to, you know, get him a game to get him into his, uh, his eighth decade of baseball as a broadcaster, not just an ambassador in some kind of vague role. He also said that he's going to be part of SoxFest, which I thought was interesting, mm-hmm. whether that's, you know, emceeing it or, you know, hosting a panel or just kind of being involved as, uh, on, on the peripheral, uh, you know, in the peripheral sense and maybe doing some autograph sessions or some season ticket holder stuff. But yeah, I could see him, you know, playing a part. I just think, uh, uh, you know, my biggest question or, or biggest reservation for saying he would is just, you know, based on how emotional he was about it. Um, you know, this whole, you know, sense of finality, would he, would that kind of reopen the floodgates and be something like, well, I'm saying goodbye again, or would it be a way to, you know, make it easier if he thinks like, oh, I could do this one time a year and, you know, keeps me in touch with the game or what the White, what the White Sox are doing this year, uh, makes me a presence, you know, allows me to indulge in some of uh, things I miss. And, you know, that's good enough. Moving on as far as with the rest of the Cubs series and, I think we're going to see Hawk again. So I don't think that this is a goodbye because a goodbye to me is final. You're not going to see it'd be like when Vince Scully said, I'm done. Vince Scully has been done with Hawk. I think we're going to see Hawk not Mm -hmm. as often, maybe do two or three broadcasts. I thought we were done with Wimpy to be honest with you, but he keeps coming back. I see that kind of situation as long as Hawk is up to drive from, where is he from? Granger, Indiana, just outside of South Bend. Uh, as long as he's willing to make yep. the drive and as long as it's like once in a great moon, uh, then yeah, he'll do it. I If Jason Benetti is going to continue to do carry college football games for ESPN, obviously that's September. If this team is ever worth a damn, those games could be worth be really important that Jason <laughs> Benetti is missing out on, and that could be like a nice little treat for White Sox fans that want that nostalgia feeling watching the games on TV that Hawk Harrelson's going to call it, and maybe he could rise up to the big moments uh, and add more to the broadcast that way, uh, where Jason Benetti's still learning 
to rise up to the big moments because uh, quite frankly there haven't been any big moments for the White Sox uh, since he's taken over yeah. uh, the main duties for broadcasting but uh, I'm not in a position to say goodbye to Hawk uh, we could say goodbye for now but I have a feeling we're going to see Hawk again on a broadcast in the upcoming years but they're going to be very few and far in between yeah I would say that it's like goodbye you know I think it's goodbye enough just because he won't be on a regular schedule that we can count on. Um, and so I would say that the ceremony and the farewell tour is just in that, you know, a return for a game or two, you know, in 2019 or 2020 or however often he appears, you know, assuming it's not like, you know, another, you know, a lot of Sundays, you know, I think that would be, be a little weird. Like that would be another uh, like farewell tour for you know an aging rock band like the who or something like that where they keep coming back after farewell tours um but i think you know just a random game i think not being able to count on it not knowing uh if there will be you know one game here or there not knowing when it'll be i think i think it's worth the uh, a goodbye and um yeah, I think there is a sense of finality in that regard. Well, moving on to talk about other things in the Cubs series. Again, the White Sox won one out of three. I think that's a big achievement because I didn't feel confident for them coming into this three-game series. They won the first game 10-4, to which was quite the surprise. Ronaldo Lopez was terrific. Jose Catana wasn't in his return back to guaranteed right field. Lopez, seven innings, only allowed five hits, one earned run, which was a leadoff home run to Daniel Murphy. So he shut down the Cubs after that home run, striking out eight, no walks. Daniel Polka also hit his 27th home run in that game. And then the other two games. Game two was pretty close until the defense didn't help Lucas Giolito as Ryan Lamar's crucial misplay busted the dam wide open as the Cubs went on to win 8-3. to The highlight in that game is that Tim Anderson hit his 20th home run. And in Game 3, again, the clunker. Carlos Rodon was not good from the very beginning. The Cubs scored six runs in the first three innings on their way to a 6-1 to victory as the White Sox offense just could not get anything going against Kyle Hendricks. And Jim, out of this weekend on the field, for me, the biggest takeaway was how well Lopez pitched. We discussed on the last Sox Machine Live that you wanted to see what Lopez can do against a good lineup as his previous five starts that we've been raving about because he's been terrific were against teams like the Royals and Tigers, and those offenses are terrible. After the Cubs game, a good lineup, how do you feel about Lopez's finish to 2018? I very much liked it, <laughs> but it was, it was, you know, it reminded me his pitch mix reminded me of his early starts after he came up last year where he was kind of going with the fastball and waiting for hitters to demand something else. And, you know, sometimes it was, you know, lucky contact or weak contact. He would go seven innings, strike out a batter, you have good results, but make it seem unsustainable. And this time around, it was the same thing. And I think uh, Murphy homered, a, it was on an off-speed pitch. I can't remember if it was a, a slider or a uh, changeup. But basically, he was kind of you know, establishing the fastball. Murphy hadn't shown he could get around the fastball. Then on 3-2, he throws a changeup. I think it was a changeup. It you know, kind of drops down to the lefty hitting zone, low and in. Murphy golfs it out. And then it seemed like, all right, I'm not going to uh, dick around with off-speed stuff. I'm just going to go fastball and wait for them to prove me wrong. In this case... You know, it was like that those early 2017 starts, but with the addition of his fastball getting swinging strikes, like a lot of movements, riding it high in the zone, uh, just kind of pushing the Cubs around with it, and they couldn't, you know, couldn't adjust, couldn't get around. 
And I think that's uh, yeah, that's the kind of power he wasn't quite showing last year. And um, you know, that's the kind of power that's a difference maker because you know, while his changeup is getting better and his slider is getting better, it's still really his fastball that sets the tone for his entire start. And the thing I've liked about his finish this year is that you know the fastball has been there reliably. It's not it has didn't come and go like it did last year. It's basically there all the time. And as long as he's healthy enough, um, you know, it's a way to succeed in an above average way and at least be more than, uh, you know, the three, four starter we'd been talking about and how he'd look for most of the season. For Lopez on the season now, he his base, according to baseball reference, his wins above replacement is 2.7. He's got a 3.94 ERA. His FIP is 4.65 because he's allowed a lot of hard contact throughout the season. His workload 182 innings and two-thirds this season. He's got one more start left, so depending on how far he gets, there's a chance he could he could reach 190 innings in his first full year with the White Sox. He has 146 strikeouts to 70 walks. He's allowed 25 home runs. That's not good. But his ERA plus is 106, and I know a lot of his critique all season long, Jim, has been he allows hard contact, do not trust the ERA numbers, but here we are, 31 starts into 2018, and I feel like Lopez has been a hell of a lot better than Lucas Giolito. Is this something that gives fan, should give fans more confidence that heading to 2019, where there are, a, there are some question marks about the starting rotation, we know it'll be Carlos Rodon, and we know Lucas Giolito will be around but do you feel like Ronaldo Lopez could be one of those pitchers that's the White Sox could be depend on a little bit more as far as carrying a heavy workload? I think he's done what he can with what he has this year. Um, yeah, the way he's finishing, the way he's getting up to near 190 innings, it shows that he's got some durability on his side. And you know, finishing the season averaging 95 with his fastball, ramping up to 97, 98 in the late innings when he needs a big fastball. Uh, that's all good. And uh, yeah, I guess my reservation with Lopez is that, you know, if he doesn't, isn't able to access 95 or to 98 late in games and he's more ordinary with his velocity, you know, does he have a soft enough changeup? Does he have a, you know, enough tilt or, uh, you know, enough late break on a slider, enough power on it to, you know, survive that? And, you know, he can't really answer that until he has a bad fastball. Um, and as long as he, you know, keeps throwing a power fastball, then, you know, I have really no complaints about a secondary stuff. So that's, I guess the rub with Lopez is just, uh, trying to see what he has next year and, and how long this, you know, pretty much elite fastball, at least, at least elite fastball velocity for a starter hangs around. What else caught your eye from this series? Uh, you know, Tim Anderson getting to 20 homers. I, I didn't know whether he could just because the contact had been a bit weaker and more to the opposite field. And, you know, he's not somebody who, you know, he's going to be somebody who hits his homers left, not right. You know, in most cases, unless the wind helps him out or, you know, just happens to barrel up a, a, a big enough fastball, uh, you know, and his defense is still there. So, I mean, like, you know, I'm hoping for a better finish and because his second half has been pretty, you know, lackluster and it's kind of, you know, been more about his defense and, uh, while it's cool if he's a glove first guy based on, you know, the, uh, loudness of his tools, you know, having some pop and a lot of speed from shortstop, uh, gives him some, you know, ability to cover for, you know, a lower OBP and make more out of less when it comes to production. Um, you know, still seeing some power and, and, you know, trying to get to that 20, 25 home run level is still, you know, 
uh, I think, importance. The other thing is just, uh, you know, Wellington Castillo kind of coming through and, and being more apart and catching Carlos Rodon for the first time, although that didn't go well. Um, you know, I, I wonder what that's about a little bit and, and just, uh, uh, I, I think that's either it shows that uh, the White Sox, you know, especially since, uh, you know, Castillo has had the elbow problems. It seems like, you know, if they wanted to bench him, you know, for the rest of the season and just play Narvaez and Kevin Smith, they would have excuse to, but I think they're still making Castillo a prominent part of the lineup and plans. And so I think, uh, you know, that might kind of signal where they're at heading into next season. So that kind of jumped out to me too. Well, we're going to shift from the Cubs series and preview the upcoming Last home series of 2018 is the Cleveland Indians coming to town. But before we do that, a quick word from our sponsor, SeatGeek. Getting tickets online can be far too complicated. With hundreds of sites and varying levels of reliability, it's hard to know who to trust. And that's why SeatGeek is the way to go. SeatGeek puts millions of tickets into one place so you can easily find the seats you want for a price you're willing to pay. There's nothing quite like being there in person and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever with every purchase is fully guaranteed so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence and you can make your Seek, make SeatGeek your go-to ticket source for everything from sports, concerts, to comedy and theater. And I use SeatGeek all season long to buy White Sox tickets. If you're looking to score a great deal in the final three home games against the Cleveland Indians, SeatGeek has tickets starting at $5 for each of these games. Or if you're thinking about the Chicago Bears or Chicago Blackhawks or Bulls, their seasons are already in full swing or coming up. Use SeatGeek and use our promo code SOXMACHINE to save money off your first purchase. All you have to do is just download the SeatGeek app onto your smartphone or visit SeatGeek.com and enter promo code SOXMACHINE. That's promo code SOXMACHINE for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. SeatGeek, life's an event, we have the tickets. And again, now previewing the final home series for the Chicago White Sox. In 2018, it is the Cleveland Indians. We just did this, didn't we? Uh, yes, the White Sox and Indians will be playing again as the Indians are wrapping up a tough series against the Boston Red Sox. Maybe a preview to the American League Championship Series. We'll have to see. The probable pitchers for this series. All games are at 7.10 p.m. Central Time as the White Sox are off on Thursday. On Monday... It is Corey Kluber against Dylan Covey. Covey actually pitched well last time against the Indians, and Kluber owns the White Sox. Tuesday, Trevor Bauer returns, as we'll see how far he can go as he's trying to get himself into shape for the postseason. He'll be going up against James Shields, most likely Shields' last home start with the White Sox in his career. On Wednesday, it is to be announced versus to be announced as both teams most likely will go to a bullpen day because on Friday, the White Sox first game against the Twins is a doubleheader to make up one of the missed games from the April blizzard where Ronaldo Lopez will start game one and Lucas Giolito will start game two. All right, Jim, there's not a whole lot riding on this series at all. For the Indians, I wouldn't be shocked if Kluber pitches five innings and that's it. And they just want to make sure that he is healthy and he remains strong. Obviously, with Trevor Bauer, the same thing. What are you hoping to see from the White Sox in this three-game series against Cleveland? 
Well, I think, you know, Dylan Covey is in an interesting position because he did pitch very well and you know, he gets people talking again, like, uh, you know, as long as he has these starting opportunities, you know, will he keep starting? And, you know, I think that's kind of past. And I think the White Sox probably have the idea that he's more of a bullpen guy. But, you know, if he has two good starts against the Indians and the Indians line up being game and, you know, I guess giving it their mall, he's not, you know, facing their B team and scrubs, then, you know, it does, I guess, keep the door open at least slightly ajar for the conversation next season. So there's that, um, you know, James Shields going over 200 innings, you know, unless you know, disaster strikes, that's uh, certainly an accomplishment given where he was last year in his White Sox career and how much the White Sox have had um, you know, other rotation problems and bullpen problems. You know, the importance of those 200 innings while not contributing wins and losses did serve a purpose. And uh, I guess the nice thing about the series is that it looks like Bauer and Carlos Carrasco are pitching the same game versus, um, you know, pitching in, say, uh, Tuesday and Wednesday. So they're, I guess, combining the White Sox biggest problems and, you know, maybe opening up Wednesday to a satisfying game, at least, you know, if you're the last home game of the year for the White Sox, maybe they face, uh, you know, some of the long relievers and, you know, I guess fringier members of the Indians pitching staff, and maybe the White Sox can score some runs for the fans as they uh, pack it up. Yeah, it's hot dog day, day as well. Hot dog night. One dollar yep. hot dogs. So, yeah, I mean, that's what I'm hoping for is just kind of, you know, after all the fans and you know, their employees and vendors that, yeah, all the bad nights they've been through, just one good night against uh, some bad pitching would be fantastic. I think I read this on Deadspin a few years ago, but it was a great article about the New York Knicks and their final home games where they made all of the food free. Hmm. I would be interested if the White Sox would allow to do that, where every all the food, not the beer, of course, or the alcohol, but the food, if they made the food free and they just kept churning out food, I wonder how many people you can get for that last home game. I don't, I don't know if I would trust that. <laughs> Why? Like, like, what's the catch? Why is this free? How, how close is it to going bad? <laughs> well, it's the last game, man. Either yeah. they, they don't use the stadium for anything else. So yeah. Yeah. But for some reason, like, yeah, the, the entry price of a dollar kind of raises the barrier of entry enough to where I, I think the, the food is maybe a bit more fresh. I don't know about that. I mean, the White Sox have standards, right? They don't want to. Yeah. They want to put a bad mark. But I'm just, I'm just wondering. I mean, for teams like the White Sox or the Royals or the Tigers or the Orioles, I feel like if you want to have that one big crowd, and because your team sucks, nobody really wants to go. But in order to entice them to go, if you make the food free, I can see a lot of people coming. Yeah, no, it would be an interesting experiment. Um, but I was just speaking from my own uh, perspective. Like one of one of the things I do in my day job is look through restaurant inspections, which uh, really makes you worry about a lot of things. So free food at the end of the season <laughs> just makes you think like, oh, what's going on here? So do you cook at home more often because of these restaurant inspections? No, I mean, like I, I cook a fair amount, but yeah, I just, it has limited has eliminated some of the places I go to. It has narrowed it a bit. Huh. And I kind of hope every time I look at a fresh crop of them that, you know, other favorites aren't on there. <laughs> well, I'm going with ignorance is bliss. Yes. I'd uh, recommend it. Yeah. <laughs> but I could just see, you know, a ton of beggars pizzas, a ton of Cubanos, 
If you didn't get a chance to go on the club level, I mean, if you can have some of those food items available in the 100 level section so fans can finally enjoy them uh, rather than having to pay the upcharge to sit in the club level, that was just an idea that I had because I don't know how many people are going to go to this Wednesday night game and it'd be like 10,000 people. But if you made the food free, I bet you could double the crowd. I bet at least 20,000 people would go to the last White Sox game if the food was free. I can see it. So that's the White Sox. And the White Sox, unfortunately, have been a little bit boring in the last couple of weeks because the only race that they are in is where they're going to draft in 2019. Now, on Monday on SoxMachine.com, I have that post up that you guys will be able to read. As far as in the morning, the Baltimore Orioles have clinched the number one pick. So the Baltimore Orioles are on the clock. As we speak, they will have the number one pick in the 2019 Major League Baseball draft. Funny thing, Jim, they just hired Bobby Witt's uncle to be one of their pro scouts. I wonder what direction they're going to go in. (laughs) Uh, The Kansas City Royals have clinched the number two draft pick. So the remaining teams, the White Sox, the Marlins, the Tigers, the Padres, even the Cincinnati Reds, these teams are in a tank battle right now on who will have the third pick in the 2019 Major League Baseball draft. You can see all those schedules that I have put out there and where the White Sox likely will end after this week concludes. But there are more fascinating conversations to have around Major League Baseball, and I don't want to be in the dour mood much longer. So let's move away from the White Sox and let's just focus on what's what else is happening in Major League Baseball. And one of the big conversations that's been going on has been the MVP race, both in the American League and in the National League, especially in Chicago regarding the National League. Jim, starting the American League, because obviously we see the American League teams far more than the National League teams. If you want to use wins above replacement, man, this is neck and neck between Mike Trout and Mookie Betts of the Boston Red Sox. If you use fan graphs, they're tied at 9.1 wins above replacement. If you use baseball reference, Mookie Betts is ahead. I am part of the Internet Baseball Writers Association of America, so you'll get to see my vote for their awards that they give out next week. But with going into this last week of the season, I guess, you know, you could. I feel like you'd always vote for Mike Trout because he is the best baseball player in the league and he's having another fantastic season. But Mookie Betts, according to Wins Above Replacement on Fangraphs, is having equally just as good of a year for Mike Trout and he's on a team that's posted the best record in all of Major League Baseball. Where do you stand for the American League MVP race? Is it Mike Trout against Mookie Betts, or is there somebody else that you're thinking of? I think it's those two, and I like Trout you know, just a little bit more, um, just because when it comes to the difference between Betts and Trout, it comes down to defense and defensive metrics when it comes to wins above replacement. And you know, I'm not uh, – you know, I do trust them to a certain extent, but when it comes to, I guess uh, – uh, yeah, I trust them more as a uh, you know, being a general sense of uh, of an uh, you know quality of defense versus like an exact amount. So when it comes to like Betts having his advantage over Trout with defense when they're both you know good to great defenders, um, yeah, I'm willing to kind of still tilt towards offense. And Trout's just 
you know, he's amazing. <laughs> and uh, right. I think when it comes to his baseball reference page, his 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 you know, track record, um, you know, given that he's lost a couple MVPs, he could have won. Um, you know, already in his career, I don't mind making up for that and, and kind of looking at him as like a, um, whatever X time MVP he ends up being, he'll have deserved it when we're talking about him, you know, 15 years from now. I agree. I think right now Mike Trout is number one. If Mookie Betts has a big week though, uh, again though, Mike Trout's been red hot as of late. He's well, it's like five <laughs> home runs in his last six games. Yeah. I mean, and if Betts wins it, you know, I don't have, I don't see it being like a, it's you not know, a controversy. Yeah, it's not a torches and pitchfork thing. You know, if he happened to win it, you know, that's cool. And he deserves to probably be an MVP at some point in his career, too. I just happened to tilt towards Trout. But, yeah, I mean, they're both incredible players. And I, I like watching them both. And, you know, MVPs, <laughs> if they somehow split the vote to where they're co-MVPs, I think it's kind of a cop-out. But if it happens to be like the result of a, um, you know, just a freak voting <laughs> outcome to where they end up sharing it tied. Yeah, it'd be kind of a fitting outcome. So with MLB on their presentation, they have the reveal, right? They have the three candidates for MVP. Obviously, we both agree Betts and Trout should definitely be up there. Who do you have as the third? Because the three choices that I'm seeing here for wins above replacement, at least on fan graphs, you got Jose Ramirez and Francisco Lindor, the Cleveland Indians, and Alex Bregman. Who out of those three would you include with Trout and Betts on the final reveal? I think uh, I would go with Ramirez just because of his flexibility. You know, I think Bregman's having an awesome season, and, and it's really remarkable. I think in other years, he might be an MVP candidate slash you know, MVP frontrunner, but it just happens to be he's playing with... You know, in the National League, I think Bregman probably would be the favorite. Yes. As it stands, I think uh, Ramirez, just his ability to play different positions... Um, you know, and, and the ability, I guess the, the added value he provides in the base paths, um, just maybe separates them just a little bit. Yeah. As a matter of fact, not only would Bregman win the National League MVP, but also Matt Chapman for the Oakland Athletics would win the National League MVP because Chapman, Bregman, Lindor, Ramirez, Betts, and Trout all have better wins above replacement than Christian Yelich for the Milwaukee Brewers. Yelich would be seventh in the American League, it wins above replacement. That's how crazy the American League has been in quality. A total 180 from 2017, Jim, uh, as far as quality yeah. of the league. But in the National League, Christian Yelich has been unconscious as well. In the second half of this year, Bregman and Yelich have just gone off for both the Astros and the Milwaukee Brewers. And in Chicago, it, Obviously, you're debating this against Chicago Cubs fans, and you know they are going the homer route as they should. Javier Baez is one of their own. Javier Baez is having a terrific season, and it feels like it's going to come down to those two players as Matt Carpenter has really cooled off in the month of September. Where do you sit as far as the discussion with the National League MVP? Because for outside of those in the Midwest, pretty much, that are not paying attention to the Milwaukee Brewers and the Chicago Cubs, you do have those that are writing national columns about Jacob DeGrom should be the National League MVP. So I guess, Jim, where do you fit right now with the discussion about the National League MVP? I kind of like DeGrom um, just because, you know, I understand the arguments against having pitchers win the MVP. But when you look at what he's done this year, and I, I guess when you look at the at it from the standpoint of, you know, which season will you remember from this year? Like, you know, when you talk about a guy's season in one year, I think that's, what, that's a, I think Trout's on a different level that every season is like that, where, you know, 
any of his one seasons would be somebody's career year for basically every player in Major League Baseball besides Mookie Betts this year. But uh, when you look at this season, yeah, I think you talk about Jacob deGrom's 2018 as like a um, incredible year that uh, pretty much you know, all pitchers would struggle to match, um, even for, you know, I would say like five of the six months. So I'm kind of leaning towards that way. I think Yelich would be second and Baez, I think. I think Baez does have an argument that he's greater than the, you know, his numbers indicates, or at least, you know, he provides that kind of excitement. And I think, you know, part of baseball and part of the experience of watching baseball is guys who, you know, make you talk about them, you know, even if it doesn't quite show up in the numbers. So I can understand that argument to an extent, but I think Yelich, I think is just a bit more sound for the things you can prove. Yeah. I'm one of those and I am I am open to have my mind changed, but I am one of those that likes to separate the pitchers and the position players from MVP and Scion. I look at the Scion as the most valuable pitcher, and I look at MVP as the most valuable position player. If we want to rename the awards and vote that way, I am 100% behind that. By taking that stance, I have Yelich ahead of Baez. Because offensively, it is a pretty significant gap, Jim. It is Yelich has a 156 weighted run created plus, and Baez has a 135. Both are very good, but that's a 21% difference between Yelich and Baez. And I understand that Baez is the better defender. Obviously, Yelich is in the outfield, and Baez is in the middle of the infield, and we see his tags and everything, but. I don't know where the Milwaukee Brewers are if Christian Yelich doesn't go on this tear. Yeah. And I, I guess you could make the argument, well, where are the Chicago Cubs if Javier Baez doesn't play this well? I feel more confident that the Cubs would still make the postseason if Christian Yelich didn't go on this tear. The Milwaukee Brewers season is in real danger of not making the postseason. So that's why I'm going to go with Christian Yelich. War's better. The offensive numbers are better. I'm going with Yelich for the National League MVP. But again, my mind is open as far as being convinced that pitchers should be qualified for the MVP. I think you and I both agree, though, the National League Scion, I think that's a slam dunk. It's Jacob deGrom. If Jacob deGrom doesn't win it unanimously, I think it's going to rely on what? On the old way for the voters because, what, he only has nine wins on the season? There, there was one of the Mets bloggers, and they, they posted this great tweet, Jim. If the New York Mets scored four runs, four runs in every single one of Jacob deGrom's starts, his win-loss record would be 31-0. I think there is a um, there is some quibbling with that. I think it doesn't quite account for runs given up by the bullpen. So it's not exactly that, but pretty close. Okay, so let's say... He only wins twenty of those thirty-one games. Yeah. I mean, that's 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 the lack of support. I mean, Jacob yeah. Degrom has nine wins. He has nine losses. He has thirteen no decisions, carrying a one point seven seven ERA. And you're right, Jim. This is a season we are going to remember. Wow, Jacob Degrom in 2018. That was a crazy season. Just like how we remember Zach Granke going below. To ERA with the Los Angeles Dodgers a few years ago. In the American League, I find the American League Scion conversation a bit different because two of the early leaders, Chris Sale and Trevor Bauer, got hurt and they missed significant time, which I guess opened the door for guys like Justin Verlander and Garrett Cole, the Houston Astros. 
maybe to a point, Corey Kluber, maybe Luis Severino. Where do you sit right now in the American League for the Cy Young? Well, Blake Snell, too. I mean, he's... He oh, won Blake 21st, Snell. Yeah, 21st game. His ERA is... Uh, I forget what it came down to. 1.97. Yeah. yeah. So it's... Uh, you know, he's got that. Um, and I kind of wonder if that's enough to tilt. But I think, you know, when it comes to, uh, you know, starters and the Cy Young, I still like innings a lot, uh, workload a lot. And so when you have Snell only... I don't know, I just want to look at the most recent numbers here because I was looking at Fangraph's leaderboard... Always exciting to listen to somebody look it up. Yeah, Snell's up to 175 innings, which is pretty low for a Cy Young winner. Uh, he's down to a 1.9 ERA, so he's got that going for him. But when it comes to you know starters and horses and such, I still like innings, and so I'm kind of still. Uh, or now I'm leading Verlander, which I thought he was kind of out of it because he's having like a good season, but you know Chris Sale is outpacing him, and then Sale got hurt, and Sale hasn't right now qualified for the ERA title. So, you know, that kind of hurts them there. Um, but, you know, Verlander's up to 208 innings. He's leading the league in that regard. Uh, Kluber's making a run for it, uh, but he's just kind of a, a notch behind in the numbers and such. So I think I'm leaning Verlander right now. Yeah, I can see where the old school voters are going to make their votes for Verlander and Kluber. Because I, I think the Indians are going to beat the White Sox on Monday. Kluber's going to get his 20th win. Obviously, they're going to look at that just like with Blake Snell with him earning his 20 wins, especially for a Tampa Bay Rays team, right? That's really impressive as far as on how well he's pitched. But again, wins don't really matter that much. We like to look at the peripherals uh, and Snell has just been terrific this year with a 1.97 ERA. I don't know what it's going to come down to. If you want to use wins above replacement for fan graphs, it's Verlander with Garrett Cole, a close second I don't. Who would you well, have? Sales, any- sales got a. Um, he's in between Verlander and Cole, even though he's only thrown 153 innings. <sighs> I don't. Who's on, who's your who's your final three? I think I, that's tough. I don't even yeah. know how to choose one. I don't know how to choose three out of these guys. I think it might be Verlander, Sale, and Snell. I'm good with that. I'm good with that. I. Yeah, he, he easily go five, six deep. I mean, you could make the case that Carlos Carrasco has had a good, just as good of a season as Corey Kluber. Yeah, and Sale's kind of knocked down a Bauer in terms of, you know, great stuff uh, uh, interrupted by injury. You know, just uh, yeah. uh, building a great case that just, uh, you know, couldn't quite uh, amass the workload after going on the DL. But, you know, Sale's numbers are incredible <laughs> across the board. You know, the 1.98 FIP, which is just, uh, you know, just shows how dominant he's been with walks and strikeouts and homers. So, yeah, it's just... It's amazing that uh, yeah, if Sale does come up short, I mean, like it's gonna be what a seventh year in a row of a top, yeah, six finish. Yeah, he's gonna get it one day. I know it. He needs like the lifetime achievement. Oh, I guess the Hall of Fame is the lifetime achievement award, but yeah. But you know how voters are. I was really hoping to be. You know how voters are. They're gonna look at it be like, well, how many Cy Young awards did he win? It's like none, (laughs) but he's finished in the top three like six times, like. Oh, I really felt this was going to be the year, Jim. Yeah. It just he, that injury really hurt his chances. But I know it's in, in him. He's going to win it eventually as long as he remains healthy for an entire year. It's just a matter of time. All right, so those are the award races. Looking ahead to the playoff position battle. Now, a lot of the races are have already been determined. In the American League, we know which teams are going into the postseason. 
But who's going to host that one-game playoff between the Yankees and the Oakland Athletics? As we record this, the Yankees are 95-60. and 60, The A's are 94-62. and 62, So the Athletics are two games behind the Yankees in the loss column. As far as the remaining schedule, it is not easy for the Yankees. The Yankees are on the road for their final six games of the season. Seven games of the season, I should say. They first start in Tampa Bay, and then they go to Boston to finish the season. And I'm not sure what each team wants to do in those three games against each other. Boston may rest a lot of their starters because, again, they've already clinched the division. Oakland, on the other hand, goes to Seattle. That will be a tough series for them. And then they finish the year at Anaheim. So both teams are going up against divisional rivals. Again, the Athletics have to make up two losses in the column. Who do you think hosts that one-game playoff, Jim? Well, I think the Yankees just lost Didi Gregorius to a wrist injury, so that hurts them. Um, but yeah, I think at this point, two games in the loss column is a big deal. And so I can, yeah, I still think it's going to be the Yankees, but I want Oakland. You know, I, I think my head says New York. My heart says Oakland because I love Oakland's playoff crowd. I I think it would just be awesome. 50,000 people in Oakland. And I, I, I just don't know, though. I don't think they can. I think the Yankees will end up hosting that one-game playoff, but I think Oakland makes the Yankees sweat. They've been making everyone sweat, and I do not think it'll be a guaranteed win for the Yankees against the Oakland Athletics because the Athletics have a good bullpen just like the Yankees do. It'll be really fascinating uh, unlike last year's wild card, where it was interesting after one inning and then it got ugly real quick between the Yankees and the Twins. Moving over to the National League, this is where the races are still pretty heated up. In the National League Central, you have the Chicago Cubs are 91 and 64. They have a two and a half game lead over the Milwaukee Brewers, and the Brewers have a two game lead over the St. Louis Cardinals. The Cardinals sit four and a half games back of the Cubs in the National League Central. In this week, you have a crucial, crucial series between the Milwaukee Brewers and the St. Louis Cardinals as the Brewers head to St. Louis. Meantime, the Pittsburgh Pirates are playing in Chicago, and the Pirates are at 78 and 76, and they're just in that state that they're going to be annoying. And then the Cubs finish the year three at home against the St. Louis Cardinals. So depending on how that series goes against for the Cardinals uh, against the Milwaukee Brewers, there may be an opportunity for the Cardinals still for the National League Central. Meanwhile, after their series in St. Louis, Milwaukee goes back home for a three-game series against the Detroit Tigers. So the Brewers have it pretty easy ending the 2018 season, Jim. How do you see the National League sorting out? Well, you have the Rockies too. Um, they're just a game, in, uh, one and a half games behind St. Louis for the second wildcard spot. And uh, they took care of business with the uh, Diamondbacks, kind of kicked them down the stairs and uh, knock them out of the picture. So, And they end the season with uh, uh, home games uh, the rest of the way against the Phillies and Nationals. So it's really on the Cardinals. And, you know, being that I picked the Cardinals to make a World Series run from the wildcard spot, I'm still heavily invested in them. But the Rockies, you know, if the Brewers take care of the Cardinals, the Rockies could be there to uh, swoop in and steal the spot. So, um, Well, the Rockies are still in the race for the National League West. They're yeah. only a game and a half behind the Dodgers. Yep. But I mean, like, even if the Do- Dodgers have been playing really well, they look like they finally uh, put it all together. Puig's been cool. So it's, you know, they're kind of uh, looking like they're uh, 2017 form at the right time. But uh, the Rockies, even if they, you know, they can't quite catch up to the Dodgers, um, you know, they're in position to you'll make up ground one way or the other. Yeah, Manny Machado's been red hot, red hot 
for the Los Angeles Dodgers. The Dodgers, again, they're at, they're on the road for the remaining games of the season. They're at Arizona and then at San Francisco, and San Francisco, I think, has pretty much mailed it in. I think the Cubs are going to win the Central, Jim. I think the Dodgers are going to win the West. So which two of the three do you think makes it into the wild card between the Brewers, Cardinals, and Rockies? I think I'm going to go with Brewers and Cardinals. I'm going to stick with the Cardinals all the way to the bitter end. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go Brewers and Rockies. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I just think that the Brewers, man, you know, it really comes down to that series between the Brewers and Cardinals. The Cardinals, if they could find a way to sweep that series, obviously the conversation flips on its head. The Brewers would be in hot, hot water. That's not an easy seven-game stretch at home for the Rockies, though, against Philadelphia and the Washington Nationals, even though both teams have been eliminated. Now, I... Okay, I'm going to go Brewers and Rockies. Okay. Um, I like the the Rockies. I think, you know, they're probably my NL team, you know, overall. So I'm I'm pulling for them. But, uh, you know, if the Cardinals happen to lose and dash my dreams of having a uh, outlandish prediction, then the Rockies will be a worthy replacement. Yeah, let's have a... Rockies Athletics World Series, baby. Uh, I'm all for it. <laughs> It'll most likely be Dodgers and Astros again, based on how well the teams have been playing as of late. Uh, but we'll be talking about that postseason and making our final postseason predictions next week on the Sox Machine Podcast as we recap the final week of the season next Monday. But you guys had questions for us to tackle about the White Sox. So let's get to those next NPO Socks. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Socks. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, the fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Socks, where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter, tweeting them to us at Sox Machine, posting your questions on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Sox Machine, or helping support the show and the website by becoming a friend of the podcast at patreon.com slash Sox Machine. And of course, answering your questions is Jim. And the first question we have, Jim, has been a pretty popular conversation as of late, as many teams are making some adjustments with their minor league affiliations. And one of those minor league affiliations does impact the White Sox. They just announced recently to extend with the Winston-Salem Dash into 2022. But there's the topic of the Kannapolis Intimidators. And Matt Hinckley's asking, with Kannapolis building a new downtown ballpark, what might be causing a delay in the White Sox renewing their affiliate agreement with the Intimidators? Well, you know, looking at the... I guess the process for which teams and affiliates link up, I was trying to find like a definitive article or maybe one that talks about the negotiation process, like the inside baseball about, you know, which, you know, who drives the conversations that teams, um, you know, the ones holding the cards, is it, the, you know, affiliates who have more say in it than we might think. Yeah. You know, I couldn't find anything certain. It seems like the teams drive the conversation, especially like say in the smaller markets. However, you know, I, I did see, with the Oakland A's and the Texas Rangers and the Nashville Sounds with the Nashville affiliate, it seemed like the Nashville uh, Sounds were the ones who could break off or who were the ones who broke it off with Oakland 
to pick up the affiliation with the Rangers and the A's ended up going to Las Vegas. And I don't know, you know, given the geography involved and how Las Vegas might make more sense for the A's in terms of, you know, their other affiliates and shifting players around, maybe it's a, a, a consolation prize they are prepared for, but it seemed like in that case that the, the Nashville sounds were the ones that broke it off. So I could see it being like one of two conversations. One is that, you know, maybe with Kannapolis having a new stadium that, you know, they're maybe looking to see what their options are for other teams. And I guess, you know, what kind of agreements they can strike, uh, you know, before they weren't that desirable just because they were, you know, a, an ordinary Carolina team with a substandard stadium and, you know, not a whole lot of interest in moving to a downtown stadium where it seems like, you know, fans and residents are jazzed up for it. It seems like, you know, maybe they're uh, poised to, you know, grab off a bigger share of uh, Sally League attendance and everything like that. So maybe that's part of it. Uh, the other thing is that the uh, White Sox haven't agreed to a PDC uh, with the Great Falls Voyagers either. That's still up in the air. So maybe they're kind of reconfiguring their lower levels and their link between you know rookie ball and A ball and seeing where that goes. So maybe it's kind of undecided for both because they're reconfiguring you know how their uh, lowest levels kind of link up. So I could see that being the case. But you know, looking at the timeframes for how they extended their contracts the last two times around. One was in December before the season. One was in July. Um, so they didn't go this far before mm. introducing a new contract. So this does seem new. And it does seem like uh, a change might be in the offing if they haven't agreed to one yet. Can I toss an idea to you? Okay. The Kane County Cougars deal expired with the Arizona Diamondbacks. Do you think that the White Sox would entertain the idea of getting out of the South Atlantic League, the Sally League, and move into the Midwest League. Seems like it could make sense. Um, you know, even though you lose that link between Kannapolis and uh, Charlotte and Winston-Salem and having, you know, their personnel and, you know, whether it's players or scouts or, um, you know, trainers or whatever, you know, kind mm -hmm. of roaming those facilities so close to each other. You know, when you see what the Cubs have done with, um, you know, their affiliates in Iowa and South Bend, uh, it does seem like if you're trying to play up the importance of your prospects and um, you really make it a White Sox system in a White Sox way versus um, you know just kind of uh, you know, making it up as you go along with some prospects, but mostly outside of uh, acquisitions, you know, it does make sense for marketing purposes to have fans be able to see those players at some level, even if you know most of their talent and facilities are still concentrated in the Southeast. So. You know, that's not an outlandish idea and, you know, it does make some sense in terms of their ability to say, like, you know, if they're doing that hashtag neck socks, uh, it does make it, you know, I, I do wonder, you know, now thinking about it, you know, if it does kind of rub the affiliates the wrong way, if they have, you know, kind of uh, undue attention on A-ball versus, say, like Birmingham or Charlotte, but it does make it, a, a, you know, I think the White Sox a bit more competitive with the prospect attention, you know, if they are able to, you know, have an affiliate there, you know, say... You know, sending you know, writers and uh, you know, the, the papers cover it, maybe the TV stations cover it, you know, kind of uh, going to uh, DeKalb and, and, and you know, checking out their, the latest draft pick or the top prospect, top international prospect, uh, you know, giving those guys more exposure at that level. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe it does kind of take some of the attention off the Cubs, you know, similar moves at uh, in the minor leagues. I just don't know if the White Sox will make that decision via marketing reasons, though. I, I don't I don't know how the Sally League compares to the Midwest League. Last time I paid attention to the Midwest League, I was living in Appleton, Wisconsin, 
and mm. watching the Wisconsin Timber Rattlers. Funny story, last time I lived in Appleton, they had this stud rookie that the Brewers just drafted named Brett Laurie. Uh, <laughs> oh, memories. Anyways, I got a feeling that I, I have to imagine the White Sox will make this this decision two reasons. One, competitive. How competitive is this league? And how does this help us from a player development standpoint? Two, logistically. I think it makes sense to have three minor league teams around Charlotte because it's easy to get flights from Chicago to Charlotte. And Winston-Salem's an hour and a half drive away from Charlotte. And I think Kannapolis is closer to Charlotte. Plus, your scouts are also going to the Cary, North Carolina headquarters because that's where Team USA is located. And you have a lot of the top high school showcases that, of course, in the summer, the top college players play for Team USA. Just it's very convenient to have like a big base there uh, as far as scouts. That's how I think the White Sox would look at it. I think there are some teams that do look at it from a marketing perspective. I just don't know on the weights as far as, you know, which ones weigh the most heaviest to decide where the White Sox could have their affiliates. Yeah, I'm thinking of it more as an all things being equal, you know, for okay. both A ball levels that can develop players the same way. Um, you know, being, you know, while you would remove Canapolis from that chain of the, you know, going from, uh, Winston-Salem, you know, exchanging players back and forth, you know, that makes it a bit harder to fill in roster gaps the way that they do with organizational players. You know, when it comes to the White Sox personnel, you know, it's a lot easier for them. You know, it's an easy flight to Charlotte, but an easier drive west. Yeah. And you know, it, it really depends. Can you wait as a as the White Sox? Can you wait two more years for that new stadium to be ready? Is it going to be ready at, before or after 2020? I think it's for the 2020 season. Okay, so one more year. I think you could wait one more year. But as far as the teams in the Midwest League that have affiliates there, the Rays, the Reds, the Padres, the Dodgers, the Indians, the Blue Jays, the Cubs with South Bend, the Tigers, the Athletics, the Angels, the Twins. Okay, so you have a lot of your fellow opponents. So you kind of kill two birds with one stone. You can also get a leg up on your divisional rivals because again the twins indians and tigers uh all have affiliates in the midwest league so it may make sense as well from a scouting standpoint of if arizona wants to leave kane county take it over yeah it would be it would be cool for fans because i remember like looking through mark burley's history he pitched for burlington i think at the time or he pitched yeah for burlington and he you know pitched in kane county and the White Sox, you know, had some writers there, or at least the the media when there there are a lot more newspapers at that time in the late nineties. Uh, you know, they had some, you know, the smaller papers had some beat writers there talking about Mark Burley's, you know, start in front of Kenny Williams. And it was, you know, kind of cool. And uh it would be fun to have that uh give fans an ability to see those guys for, you know, that kind of you know, and the White Sox, you know, being a family friendly ballpark experience and you know how much, you know, because of the quality of team and how starved they are for attendance, you know, it's a pretty good family experience and pretty cheap afternoon to kind of, uh, I guess, reinforce themselves as a family option for, uh, you know, the Western suburbs and, uh, you know, even, you know, fans who don't want to make the drive, um, you know, into the city on rush hour and, and watch White Sox baseball, they have another way to watch a brand of White Sox baseball. So I kind of like that idea, but yeah, just, uh, um, 
I really can't say. What, yeah, it just seems like given how long it's taken for the White Sox to link up with Kanapolis this time around, it does seem a little bit like, you know, either the White Sox or Kanapolis is looking to make a change. All right. If the decision came down to you, Kane County or Kanapolis, which one would you pick? For my purposes, I would pick Kanapolis, but for the greater Chicago area, I would hope for King County. Okay. But you could have been selfish. You could have just said, I'll just continue with Kanapolis. I would say the New York Penn League. <sighs> well, that's for Great Falls, isn't it? Yeah, that's what I'm hoping for. So well, that's great. great. Yeah, I mean, uh, can we be real for a moment? And nothing against the great folks at Great Falls, Montana. But I do not understand why the White Sox have a team in Montana. I oh, just Arizona, I you know, players going from there. That's got to be a far journey still. Yeah, but I mean, like in terms of, you know, they they do have a base out west with Arizona. So it's not like they're the only players on that side of the country. So oh. that's my only, you know, that, that league is really kind of that's my only link to it otherwise. But yeah, New York Penn League, I can at least see him. All right. Well... Okay, so Great Falls moves to the New York Penn League. That makes Jim happy. And then King County to make everybody else happy. Okay, that's a great question, Matt. There's <laughs> a lot of conversation about where the White Sox A-League affiliate is. It'll be interesting to see what the White Sox will do. Our next question in the mailbag comes from B-Roz. Oh, man, this is a loaded question. B-Roz is asking, it's been 21 months since Rick Hunt initiated the rebuild. Can you guys do... An overall grading on how he's performed with trades, the draft, and the international signing of Luis Robert. Well, you know, I think we'll be picking at these uh, topics, you know, over the course of the long offseason, you know, in greater detail. But I think, you know, if you look at it from the kind of just overall level, you know, those three areas, trades, drafting, um, international, I think uh, trades, I, I still think are doing okay on the balance. I think the uh, Chris Sale trade a little bit down right now with Moncada having such an uneven season. Michael Kopech being out for 2019. Um, you know, Basabe is looking good. So, I mean, I think he's recouped some value there. But I think on the whole, not quite inspiring yet. But on the other hand, the Adam Eaton trade, even with Giolito being uneven, Lopez taking a step up, Dunning avoiding surgery so far. Um, you know, that still looks like a winning trade. And then the, you know, Jose Quintana deal still looks great. So, those trades on the whole and, and the, the you know, ability to turn uh, Joaquin Soria into something, you know, it's, that was a neat, you know, nifty deal. So I think so far the trades are are holding up their end of the bargain. So I would say like maybe a B minus for the trades, you know, not quite locked in, but trending positive above average. Uh, drafting, I think, has been a disappointment in that they've drafted in the first round these college ready or at least these polished college collegiate players. You know, Carson Fulmer, Zach Collins, uh, Jake Berger, Gavin Sheets, you know, these these guys with, uh, uh, you know, who are supposed to be polished and fast risers and really haven't shown how they can be reliable major leaguers yet. Um, you know, Collins with the, um, you know, hit tool being a question and not maybe not being a catcher and Fulmer um, trying to figure out how to be an effective power reliever and, you know, Berger blowing out his ACL twice and, you know, Gavin Sheets not hitting homers, not really seeing their, I guess, most marketable tools that they were supposed to have. I mean, Collins has the OBP, but the, he was supposed to be a well-rounded hitter. It's really been walks and some power and yeah, the package isn't quite there. So I think 
without those first rounders, you know, none of them really connecting yet. And we'll see about Nick Madrigal next year. Um, you know, that kind of hurts the ability to supplement, um, you know, what they've done with these trades and build up, you know, the, this kind of, uh, body of, you know, talent. And I still think that's why maybe they've been a little bit slow in some areas with promoting guys and, and, you know, especially with Eloy Jimenez, like, you know, maybe they're going to need that seventh year just because things aren't quite coming together on the sooner scale. So, there's that. And I think with the international market, um, you know, Luis Robert was a big deal and, you know, they can't be held accountable for the thumb issues he's had. So, you know, there's that, but, um, you know, Amado Nunez, I'm holding out hope for him and Lennon Sosa. Mike Rodolfo has been, you know, I think he performed admirably given his problems. So, you know, there's some hope there that he can be, you know, making impact in double A next year for most of the season. So I would say, you know, that's kind of more an incomplete, but, uh, Next year, I think, will be a big year for the international market. One, because they're out of the penalty box. And also, um, you know, I'm hoping that one of these guys, whether it's Adolfo, whether it's Nunez, uh, one of them is able to break into double A. That's been the wall. You know, they've all hit this wall in high A for one reason or another. And, you know, that's that, you know, Marco Patti, I think, you know, he had a tall task coming in. But at, at this point, we should be seeing some guys reach Birmingham. And I think Adolfo will be the key to that kind of forming a first wave of international talent finally. B-Roz, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Bill Wiggins. And Bill is asking, do you think that Rick Hahn will be a major player in the offseason with trades and or free agent signings? Or will it be lackluster again because of Michael Kopech's injury? Well, you know, we've talked about this before, and I think it's something that is worth updating because the situation shifts so much. I think when Michael Kopech looked ready and, and, and was holding his own couple starts in and Eloy Jimenez looked ready, it just kind of made it easier to predict an impact. You know, with Kopech out, we were saying maybe not, but it does seem like they're going to have to swing multiple times at the free agent market. So it doesn't seem like they can afford to sit one out. Um, I, I, you know, given that we've talked about Machado and it's really hard, even though, Jerry Reinsdorf has made strides in doing things he hadn't done before, like approving the rebuild and, you know, trading a marketable player to the Cubs and, uh, you know, breaking the bank to sign Luis Roberts. You know, it's still the one that's a little bit hard to believe that he would go to $300 million contract for somebody when the White Sox have not approved a contract above $68 million, except for maybe Torrey Hunter that one year. But, you know, that's kind of been an elusive thing, that mega contract. But it does seem like they're going to have to take multiple swings and they can't really afford, you know, if there's a position like, say, third base or center field where, you know, that heir apparent isn't ready yet for the three-year window. It does seem like it's they can't quite sit it out. So, um, yeah, I, I know the Section 108 guys love kind of mulling over the Tommy Pham thing and, you know, that kind of <laughs> trade. And uh, it does seem like that kind of move... Um, even though that, you know, that one would have been a great, but just change the scenery guys, um, you know, potentially depth for depth deals. Um, you not just Wellington Castillo patch deals, but something where they are looking for a long-term fix at the upper minors or, you know, majors guys who need playing time, like the Adam Eaton deal when they brought him in, you know, somebody who was blocked. I could see that move being made, you know, trying to have these major league ready guys brought in one way or another, whether it's, you know, investment, just because, you know, last year was understandable trying to, you know, coalesce a first wave of talent and then the second wave behind it with Kopech and Jimenez. But this year I think starts to turn it into 
making the team better to address the weaknesses in the upper minors. Hmm. That's a good point that you made in regards to like an Adam Eaton trade, depending on how his health is. I mean, Clint Frazier for the New York Yankees could be one of those possible candidates just because the Yankees outfield could be loaded depending on what they want to do in free agency. It'll be interesting. This is going to be a very fun off season project uh, that we're going to have uh, after the world series, uh, which if the playoffs are like last year, that'll be in early November where we, where we will start busting these out. Uh, but yeah, definitely something to think about. It's a great question, Bill. Thank you guys so much for submitting your questions this week for P.O. Socks. And if you have a question for a future episode of the podcast, again, follow us on Twitter. We're at Socks Machine. Like our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Socks Machine. And again, help support the show and the website by becoming a friend of the podcast at Patreon.com slash Socks Machine. And that will do it for this episode of the Socks Machine podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you just discovered the show, you can subscribe in a variety of ways. iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Audioboom.com slash Socks Machine. The Socks Machine podcast is a production of SocksMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.